Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. Welcome back to another podcast of Open Globe Talk. I'm your host, Rizal Nathani, a fourth-year medical student at Campbell University and a research fellow at Duke. Today, I'm joined by esteemed guest, Dr. Wallace Allward, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Iowa. He graduated medical school from Ohio State University and completed residency at the University of Louisville in ophthalmology. He then went on to conduct a fellowship in glaucoma at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. His research areas included pigmentary glaucoma, combined glaucoma and cataract surgery, normal tension glaucoma, and gonioscopy. As a leader in medical education, Dr. Albert founded the website gonioscopy.org in 2007 as a resource to teach gonioscopy to residents. He has also been a driving force in launching the Iowa Glaucoma Curriculum, which is a 50-lecture introduction to glaucoma. He has been part of Orbis for more than 20 years and a part of University of Iowa for over 30 years, and was recently named as one of the heroes of Orbis for his remarkable contributions. Welcome, Dr. Albert. It's a great pleasure to finally um, have you on our show. Um, so let's uh, jump off and ask you uh, how you're doing today. I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. That's perfect. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about yourself and how you came to choose ophthalmology? Uh, well, it's a long story. Um, so I was, uh, I did intended when I finished medical school to do orthopedic surgery. Uh, I was accepted into a residency. Um, and, um, but I owe the U S public health service two years because they paid my way through medical school. Uh, and uh, that came after a surgery internship. And I, I was stationed in a remote village in Alaska. Um, and I really loved what I was doing. Um, and um, I saw a lot of eye disease among the Yupik population. I became really interested in eyes. And then my son was born and I really didn't wanna be a surgery resident uh, with a new baby. Uh, so I stayed in public health for a total of six years, both with Indian Health and with the Centers for Disease Control. They have an Arctic lab in Anchorage. Um, and then I applied through to do ophthalmology at that time. Oh, wow. So I never actually uh, assumed that you had a, uh, a story behind that. And uh, that's, that's actually wonderful. You know, life is not always straight and you tend to choose things based on, uh, of course, changing times and changing circumstances. So it's wonderful that you were ultimately able to do so much work in ophthalmology and be a gift to this, this community. Yeah, I was a late start, obviously, because I had those six years, but I would never trade that experience. So, I mean, it was uh, it was remarkable uh, getting to work with the Native people and getting to work for the CDC was a thrill. Uh, so it was, it was uh, put me a little behind in my career, but I've never regretted it. Yeah. I mean, uh, it probably definitely built a work uh, ethic that uh, very few probably have because of uh, all the determination and the experiences you've had with different populations. 
Right. And I think, you know, having the chance to have done general medicine, have a lot, I have a lot of respect for people who do general kinds of medicine, like internal medicine, pediatrics, and family medicine. Um, but I really wanted to, uh, to know something in great depth. Um, I, I enjoyed being a generalist, but I really wanted to be the person on the other end of the phone when you saw something really complicated. Yeah. Yeah, I can resonate with that. I actually started with uh, internal medicine and eventually down the road, I realized that I want to specialize. So it's a, it's an interesting, you know, decision that we all come to when we decide on, on a specialty. Yeah, I think so. Ophthalmology is uh, spectacular as a career. Yeah. So what about uh, glaucoma? You completed residency and uh, of course, everybody confronts what's next, right? Um, and then you completed a fellowship in glaucoma. Why exactly that field? And what, what makes you most uh, happy about uh, doing that specialty? Yeah, so <clears throat> I did my residency, as you said, I did it in Louisville. And at the time I was there, uh, there was no glaucoma specialist in Louisville. Fel you know, fellowship trained glaucoma specialty um, or any subspecialty was fairly uncommon, not uncommon, but it wasn't real common back then. And um, Louisville has a large African-American population. We had some really severe glaucoma. And uh, uh, if something was terribly severe, we really needed to send it to St. Louis, um, to Washington, Wash U. Um, so uh, part of it was I saw a need. Uh, and my, my goal was to come back to Louisville and practice there. Uh, but once I was at Bascom, um, I really, uh, really fell in love with the whole academic ophthalmology, just seeing uh, people's brains working and trying to, uh, trying to teach, which has been one of my favorite things I've done, but also trying to do research that changes the way that we see the disease glaucoma and the way we treat it. Uh, uh, and so I, um, that, that brought me uh, into academic medicine, the experience I had in Miami. Wow. Yeah, Miami is uh, huge and uh, they specialize in everything you can imagine. Um, and I, I also noticed you were part of the team that founded the first gene for the primary open glaucoma. So uh, how did how, how did that happen? Yeah, well, we had we had a family in uh, Illinois. Uh, we're about an hour from Illinois. And so we see a lot of patients from that state. Uh, and um, and this patient had a, a history of juvenile glaucoma, had pressures in the 50s and 60s when he was 20 years old. And um, uh, we started to talk with him about his family and it turned out that his family was huge and 50% of them had early onset glaucoma. My, my resident at the time was Ed Stone and Ed is, uh, has one of the biggest genetics programs in the world now. Uh, at that time, he was an MD, PhD, uh, wanted to work on something. And so we started to try to map this family. We found the linkage, the GLC1A linkage in this family. And then uh, after a period of time, found the myosin gene, which you know, was certainly the academic highlight of my career. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's uh, you don't tend to realize how big those landmarks are in your life until you move forward. And you know, these are the starters for, for something really big in the field. So um, really interesting how, how that comes about. Yeah. And I think for, I mean, think for people who aren't MD, PhDs like myself, uh, 
it just shows that it, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of people in different ways to contribute to stuff like this. You know, I uh, uh, just was always on the lookout for interesting families, interesting patients that I didn't know how to answer the questions generally, but I knew how to ask the questions. And so, for people who are clinicians, knowing uh, how to ask a question. Um, and knowing that something is, is interesting, even if you don't know quite what to do with it, uh, is an important, it's an important contribution. I, I mean, an example for me, uh, besides myicillin is, uh, is, uh, FOXC1. So FOXC1 gene for Axenfeld-Rieger syndrome, we found that gene with just one patient. You know, I had a, a little girl who had a, chromosome 613 translocation. And she had all sorts of um, intellectual and, and systemic health issues, uh, but she also had glaucoma. And so I, I just asked the question, could the, could the gene be where this breakpoint is? And, and we found the gene that at that time was uh, called 4KED7 and now is FOXC1. And it's been found now in families and other uh, uh, people with uh, Axenfeld-Rieger syndrome. But again, it was just asking the question. Now, if, if I had to answer the question, it would never have been answered. But Val Sheffield, who's one of our geneticists, and uh, I mean, uh, Dr. Uh, Daryl Nishimura in his lab uh, spent years trying to find where this gene was at that break point and uh, proved to be a really important gene. Um, and, um, and I, I, again, just shows that, you know, you can contribute by asking the right questions and, and being an observer, which if you're a good doctor, you're a good observer. Yeah. I think, uh, that, uh, statement that you just mentioned is so significant, uh, in a student level, in a trainee level, uh, and perhaps a, a lesson for, for life, I think. Um, and the earlier we get started in asking good questions, I think the better we're able to figure out what, um, you know, better things and more things that people may have missed, um, and those perspectives are really important. So asking good questions and developing that skill comes with experience and uh, it should be practiced more often than not. Yeah, and I think it also, the other lesson is that, I mean, it's, it's fine to be brilliant and go out and solve kinds of, all kinds of problems on your own, uh, but it's much more fun to be a part of a team that's, uh, that's uh, all pulling in the same direction, all trying to answer the same uh, question, all bringing different skills to the table. Um, for me, that's been a, a real thrill to just work with other people who have uh, vastly different skill sets than I do. You know, we have a lot of uh, bioengineers who crunch data for us uh, who don't really know anything about medicine, but they know a lot of stuff that we don't know. And uh, without them, we wouldn't get anywhere. Uh, and so it's uh, it's fun. It's just fun to share ideas with people who uh, bring uh, different skills uh, to the table. And, and I, I think the days of going out and making huge contributions alone, um, I don't, I just don't see that happening. Everything's too complex, I think, for one person to do it all. Yeah. Uh, it takes a village to make a doctor, as they say. So that's definitely very, very true um, to, to making any organization in today's world. Um, my next question I wanted to ask, uh, so I mentioned you created Gonioscopy earlier. Um, how did you come about the creation of gonioscopy.org? 
Um, it's a it's a free website. Um, it's a free resource, and uh, I looked at it, and the videos were incredible. Um, I think the teaching uh, is is next to none, and I could probably, as a student, go to a clinic, find a slit lamp, and try uh, it on patients if they're cooperative um, with that video. So um, I think it's it's a fantastic resource. So just wanted to hear about that story on on finding that. Yeah, so the gonioscopy, uh, you know, like in a sense, it's a little bit like the myosin story. It's, um, and I always tell young people when they're starting out in their career, when they go to a new place, sort of look around and see what's here. You know, not just the um, facilities, but the people you could work with. What's unique about where you are? You know, for us, a lot of it was the genetics horsepower that we had. The other thing when I came uh, to Iowa. Uh, uh, the person who was filling out part of the reason that I came to Iowa was because Dr. Phelps, who preceded me, had, had died at a young age. And so someone filled in for the year between his death and me starting there. And um, and uh, we just, you know, both of us wanted to have a good slide collection because back then that's all I had was two by two photochrome slides. And he shared with me some slides of artwork by this man named Lee Allen. And um, Lee was a uh, was a student of the very famous um, artist Grant Wood, you know, the American Gothic artist who was here in Iowa City. And um, uh, Lee learned how to paint the angle. He was the best goniosmus on the planet, uh, but he was also a brilliant artist. And so he made a lot of paintings of the angle. And, and so I had just finished fellowship. I saw these paintings and it just it just took my breath away because it I could finally see the angle. Back then, there really wasn't great photography. Videography really didn't exist for gonioscopy. And so um, I thought everybody needs to see these pictures. And so I wrote a little book called The Color Atlas of Gonioscopy. Um, it's still in print. It's, I think I published it the first edition in 1994, uh, just to share those pictures. So, you know, it's not like I knew anything more about gonioscopy than anybody else, but I had the Lee Allen paintings. And, um, and that got me sort of interested in gonioscopy. So we had a photographer, Randy Rodick, who was knew a lot about videography. So he taught me how to do video. And we set up one of our exam rooms to allow us to take videos of anything interesting. And I just started to collect stuff. I, uh, I'm a big collector of photos and videos. And um, when, when the Academy, so my book was originally published by um, Wolf, which is part of Mosby. And the Academy took over the copyright and they asked me to do a second edition, which we did. But I said, wow, I've got all these videos. We should make a DVD because the, the videos show you stuff the pictures just can't show. Right. And they weren't that uh, interested at the time. So uh, we had a we have a IT woman uh, named uh, uh, Jess Bramow and Jess just wanted to build a website. There weren't really many websites in 2007. And so she just built it. And, um, and that was, it was great uh, for me and, and I think for Jess uh, and uh, it was very well received. It's used everywhere on, on earth. And, uh, uh, and that's pretty gratifying just to see, you know, being able to teach somebody in a place where they might not be able to afford a book. Uh, they just don't have access to that, but most people could get online and, and watch a gonioscopy video. You know, so the, uh, the reach was really important to me. I decided to make it free partly because uh, I didn't know how to charge for it. Uh, 
And, um, and then after I, after it was used in places where finances would be an issue, I thought, well, we'll just make everything great. So, and I think that was a really, I think it was a good decision. No, I think it, it creates uh, a lot of equity. Um, and, uh, you may not realize it, but for, for somebody who is really looking for um, a resource, having that free resource, being able to sample through the videos uh, really, really helps and creates that audience um, so that they can refer it on to other people who may be in similar circumstances. So, you know, um, your work is going to be pretty much immortal at this point. So this is, uh, it's great. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, it's been very gratifying. I've, I've, uh, the gonioscopy is, uh, has been a interesting sideline i think once you get into ophthalmology you realize it's kind of the two really hard things and a lot of hard things in terms of exam but i think the things that people trip over are doing indented retina exams those are hard still hard for me at this point in my life and uh and gonioscopy they're just skills that are a little bit more challenging and uh and just to make it easier and also it's a good thing and then and also there are some techniques like the corneal wedge and doing indentation that people just don't learn unless uh, they watch a site like that and see how that's done, how it's easy to do, how it can um, open doors for you that if you just put a gonial lens on, you wouldn't see some of these things. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, you need to take some time on your own after watching these videos, make those mistakes, and then be able to use the limited resources that mentors have th with their time uh, and fine tune what what you might need so i think those videos are fantastic so yeah oh, thanks. thanks been fun um on the topic of global ophthalmology which is our podcast i kind of want to uh get started on uh, uh talking how you um were, were recruited into orbis and global ophthalmology yeah so i i'm trying to remember um i um I think that I probably went to India before I did Orbis to our event. I was invited to go there uh, by Alan Robin, who is a, uh, a, a huge force in the, the collaboration between the US and India, particularly Aravind. Uh, and uh, so I had the chance to go there um, many years ago uh, and, and fell in love with uh, with Aravind, uh, the, the quality of medicine and the innovation and the dedication is just astounding. Um, and, you know, it was, I was able to teach some things uh, to the people there. And I certainly learned probably as much um, the other way uh, and, and then continue to have a great relationship with the people in Aravind. I, I don't really know how I got asked to go on Orbis. Uh, I know that Orbis uh, asks people like me who do you think would be a good person uh, to be on Orbis? Because it, it has a lot to do with experience and skills. It also has a lot to do with your personality. You know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a very intense week when you're on the plane uh, of working with all sorts of people, uh, nurses and, and technicians and anesthesiologists and bioengineers and um and it's, it's just really important that you have a good relationship with those people. Uh, and, and it's also really important to have tremendous respect for the people you're teaching. Uh, and uh, I think um, uh, somebody must have felt that, that, that I would be one of those people that would fit with that personality. Uh, 
and uh, the Orbis personality. And, and I did, I, I really I loved it from the first moment I had a chance to do it. Did you uh, ever experience like the language barrier was ever an issue for you when you went there? Oh, always, uh, almost always. I mean, it, it kind of depends on where you are. Um, my first trip was to Chengdu in China. Um, and uh, that was, I think, 2000. My daughter, who is now also a glaucoma specialist, was 13 at the time, and she went with me. Um, and um, so I, I don't think very few, many people spoke English that we interacted with there. So we always had interpreters, and it was great. Uh, the interpreters were um, uh, really easy to work with. And um, other places, uh, Kenya, for example, I think most of the people spoke English. Uh, it, it varies from site to site. Uh, obviously, medicine, uh, English is sort of a, a language that's understood. And if you if you look at people's slides, even if you don't speak the language, if it's medicine, you sort of know what's going on, right? The words are Latin. And um, uh, so it, it worked really well. Uh, we, they just, uh, Orbis has said they're so good at arranging um, uh, the sites to be perfect and uh, the support to be perfect. And... Uh, and the translation to be available. Um, and a lot of the people, so at Orbis, when you're on the ground, you usually have two mentees, two people who spend the whole week with you. Uh, we operate together on the plane. We operate together in their local hospitals. We see patients together. But then you're also lecturing to a, a, a much broader audience. The front of the plane is a lecture hall. Um, and, and so, uh, uh, those two people that you're working with are often young. And so young physicians often speak English. So the interactions with them is, is usually pretty easy. Um, my last trip was, um, was to Vietnam. I did two, my last two trips were to Vietnam. And, um, and so some of my mentees did not speak English, but interestingly, my translator, uh, is now a glaucoma fellow. I mean, he became really interested in glaucoma. His English was, it was spectacular, is spectacular. Um, and he was a resident, an ophthalmology resident. So he's now a fellow in, uh, in Australia, uh, in uh, Sydney, uh, studying glaucoma. So that's kind of exciting for me. That's wonderful. Um, so, you know, speak, to, uh, let's kind of go to words like the virtual world uh, that the pandemic has forced. Uh, it was kind of uh, unprecedented for Orbis to go virtual. Um, and you were part of, of that initiative. Um, uh, and I'm kind of curious to know, how did the, the teaching go virtually? Um, you've been a, an incredible help to Orbis uh, during this, this period. Well, you know, I, I've, um, the, the curriculum website that you described, Orbis has built their own curriculum and a lot of it is actually uh, using my building blocks for my curriculum, which I'm very happy that they're doing. Um, and, um, and so I think that they recognize that if somebody was just asked to give hours of talks about glaucoma, that I would have everything I needed to do that. I could just modify the uh, lectures that I already have videotape for the curriculum. And so I, I think that's probably how that came to pass. Um, and, um, you know, they had already planned these trips to Zambia and Mongolia. 
I've always wanted to go to Mongolia because everybody who's been there says it's really a great experience. And I would love to be to Zambia as well, but um, can only go to so many places. So I, I think they'd already had these planned. The, the plane obviously was grounded um, because of COVID. And they just, rather than just abandoning uh, the concept of teaching these people, um, they decided to do this virtual classroom. And so, you know, I was able to give the talk. They could, uh, just like you and I talking right now, they could chime in with questions through the chat um, button or occasionally ask questions. Um, I think uh, it's easier, obviously, on the plane. I think if you're there with people, after a while, they realize you're not very intimidating. And so they, they get to be comfortable asking questions. Uh, sometimes when you're interacting with a Zoom, uh, you know, gray-haired person on a Zoom thing, it's maybe a little bit more intimidating. Plus, everybody can hear the question, so you're a little bit concerned you might ask something that sounds uh, uninformed. Uh, but with time, people got better and better about just asking stuff, which for me as a teacher, I would much rather that. I mean, just, just talking to a wall is really not very fulfilling. So. Uh, uh, as they got more and more interactive as the week went along, it was a lot more fun. Yeah, actually, you just addressed my other question that I had where, you know, it's often very difficult in a virtual platform to gauge out gaps in knowledge and uh, people may feel more intimidated to ask questions. So it's great. You know, I think what probably uh, I, I gather from what you're telling me over time, people kind of uh you know, have the chance to acknowledge you virtually and they get that ability to ask you questions. Well, I, th I think it kind of wears them down. I mean, I think if you just have an hour talk with somebody, uh, you would feel a little intimidated asking them any kind of a question. But if, uh, if you've heard this person day after day and you've seen them uh, field questions in a non-demeaning way to other, you know, to, to your friends and colleagues, um, then I think, um, then, you, then you feel better about asking questions, you know, but it takes a little while. For sure, yeah, I, I definitely agree. As, especially from a medical student standpoint, it's always, you know, a, uh, a concern of, of how you ask these questions and not being able to take any, any of the precious time from, from teaching. Um, so uh, I did notice that uh, from the article that the Mongolian project had the highest enrollment in the year 2020, and uh, it also had the highest attendance in live sessions. So it seems like the Mongolian project, including the Zambian one, uh, were a great success. And virtually, even though things you know, were never meant to go virtually, they still worked out. Yeah, they they did, and and in, in Mongolian one we had a translator, as I recall, um, which slowed things down. It was a great, great translator. And I'm sure a lot of people didn't need the translator, but that was to make it you know to level the playing field. And I think what's going to happen is that as horrible as this whole pandemic has been, some of these things. Uh, will be looked at as, you know, well, maybe we should do more of this. I mean, maybe we should do more virtual teaching, not, uh, you know, and, and obviously Orbis through CyberSight and, and other curricula they, that they develop, they do a lot of virtual teaching. Um, but it, it might be that if we do a, a plane um, visit to some country that following it, you could have 
refreshers virtually for a couple of weeks or months so that you could really build on that face-to-face uh, -face experience. So I think some of this will be a good thing um, that we'll be able to uh, pick off the what, what's good about virtual education that uh, uh, not to replace face-to-face -face interaction because I think that's the best thing about Orbis. Um, and, and I would say it's uh, a lot of this is uh, a lot of things that you do volunteer things that you do. Uh, one of the real benefits is you get to interact with people who you otherwise would never get to meet. Not just the, not just the people in the country that you're um, volunteering in, but the, the other volunteers are sort of the kind of people you'd like to hang around. Not just the doctors, but the nurses and the uh, bioengineers and the pilots and all these people are such great people. Mm -hmm. that, that you don't get that obviously doing virtual stuff. Um, it's the same really with, the, I, I was a director of the board of ophthalmology and so gave a lot of uh, oral board exams. And so we've done the oral boards the last couple, well, for the last 15 or 18 months virtually. And, and there's really, there's a lot of good stuff about that. But as a, as a um, examiner, uh, you really love the chance to interact, not just with the people you're testing, but the, with other examiners. So the the, just the social interaction part is so important to a lot of things that we do. Uh, and certainly with Orbis, the social interaction is really, uh, really wonderful. I think, uh, you know, global ophthalmology is a, is a very unique and special field where I think the personal connection with these different cultures is what makes the field unique. Um, and you're right there could never be a replacement for in-person, but I think the virtual um, platform has created this uh, equity like your uh, organization with Gonioscopy has. Uh, it's, it's kind of connected us in a way where somebody could wake up at any hour of the day and uh, conduct a, you know, learning at any part of this world. And so um that's something that I find really and incredibly useful um, for ages to come. Yeah, and, and, and I, think, um, I, I think people like me who get to go to interesting places, we learn a lot. I mean, obviously we learn about the culture and uh, we learn about the way that medicine is practiced in, in these different places. And um, I think at the beginning, you sort of go feeling like, wow, I know everything, you know, I'm pretty brilliant. and. Uh, and then you realize uh, these are really, really smart people. They haven't had quite, they haven't had the chance to be at Bascom Palmer like I did, um, but they would have thrived if they had, you know, and, and um, I feel fortunate to have been exposed to the mentors I've had in my lifetime. And, uh, and it's just fun to, to take people who are really smart and would do well without me, but just to give them a few more tools that they can use to, to be uh, better taking care of their patients. Oh, yes. And, and definitely with the disproportionate number of uh, ophthalmologists to the population they serve, uh, you giving them these uh, lessons and learning something from their skills, uh, as they say, a surgeon is made by the number of cases that they do. So sometimes in countries where this uh, proportion, this ratio is so disproportionate, uh, the, these ophthalmologists are, are probably some of the best. Uh, and they're just hidden gems that we haven't really uh, discovered um, and uh, given, you know, the platform uh, for recognition. Yeah, and I think some of the people that we get to train become 
teachers in their communities. Um, the two ophthalmologists who I was mentored to in Kenya when I was here many years ago, um, Orbis arranged for them to go to Canada to do many fellowships in glaucoma. And they become very prominent in, in all of African ophthalmology, not because of me, but because of the uh, opportunity that they've had uh, uh, through Orbis uh, to develop, not just a um, surgical and medical career, but really a leadership kind of a, a role, which uh, um, really spreads the influence out over the entire country, even continent, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's, that's very heartening to know. Um, you know, I think that that's really what the pattern should be. Um, and I think that that's going to be uh, something that may resume once uh, and will resume once the pandemic era is uh, completely uh, allowed us to have in-person contact again. Um, so, you know, that's, it's an interesting. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I agree completely. So, you know, you've been an instructor uh, through these various uh, organizations. Um, I'm kind of curious to know what makes an excellent instructor and what do you think is, uh, is important in the new era of telehealth and telemedicine? I always, I always like trying to make people understand things better. Uh, for me, when I was looking at fellowships, for example, the thing that was most important to me uh, that I thought I would get at Baskin Palmer and actually had also wanted to come to Iowa before uh, Dr. Phelps uh, became very ill was the access that I would have to somebody. You know, the, my mentors at Miami who are all still there, Doug Anderson and Rich Parrish and Elizabeth Hoda and Paul Palmberg were really approachable people. Uh, and they, they seemed to love to talk about what they did and what they saw and, um, uh, and I've over the over time, I've have felt the same. You know, we at the end of our clinics, every uh, clinic, we sit down, not just me, but my partners. And of course, I stopped doing anything other than go to the uh, veterans hospital. But we would sit in, and talk uh, about the really cool cases for the, for the day. And I found that if there was a meeting or something going on that I didn't have the residence at the end of the day, to go over the six or seven cases I just thought were really cool and worth discussing. It just bugged me. I mean, I, I really felt like, oh, we got to talk about it. I would save it for the next clinic because I just thought, oh, look at this visual field. This is really fascinating. It probably wasn't that fascinating, but to me it was fascinating. And, um, and so that was something that's just built into our, our fellowship and residency is at the end of every clinic, all of us will sit down and talk about our interesting cases. And then the, the curriculum sort of came out of the notion, I had a, a resident many years ago who at the end of the residency, at the end of the rotation, really didn't know the difference between two medications, which aren't even available anymore. But, um, and I thought, well, that's pretty dumb on, on, on the resident's part, but it was a little bit was on me because um, I always talk about stuff that makes me excited. You know, I talk about pigmentary glaucoma and genetics and gonioscopy and things like that. But I don't really, if you left me alone in a room with somebody, I don't ever talk about beta blockers uh, or aqueous hemodynamics. I just, it's important to me and it's, it's interesting to me, but it just doesn't um, raise my pulse. And, uh, and so, I built this curriculum. I came up with a checklist probably 30 years ago 
that used to have 25 items and now it has 50 that the resident had to sign off on before they were done. And so they rotate through the glaucoma service. Actually now it's three times because they're there a little bit as an intern. We have an integrated internship now, um, but mostly as a first and a second year resident. And so and between those years, these are posted up on a, on a bulletin board uh, in our uh, sort of our meeting room. Um, they have to get signed off by one of us on all these topics. So that so I know at one point in their lives, they knew about aniridia. They knew everything about aniridia. And, uh, and so that's really how my curriculum developed. You know, I was doing this anyway. I have this ridiculous collection of photos and videos. And I just decided to kind of make a little video to go with each of the 50 items on the curriculum. Um, and um, I really like it, you know, it's the whole flipped classroom concept rather than me just standing there and, and just talking and droning on as I'm uh, able to do. Um, you know, I, I would ask the first year resident, so tell me about aniridia. And they would talk for five minutes about aniridia and then we would kind of probe their knowledge and uh, we'd have a discussion and maybe talk about some interesting cases that we'd seen with aniridia in, in my career. Um, and I find that that's just a great way to teach, you know, because it's really on them to have either read a book or read the basic science book in, uh, in uh, the, the academy rights or watch one of my videos and come prepared. Um, it's, I, I think it's, I know the residents like it because they've asked for other services in our department to do something similar. Um, it also gives them the chance to talk with me or one of my colleagues, uh, it's, an, it's a time that's set aside to have a discussion, you know? And so they, then they can feel comfortable just asking about, well, you know, Mrs. Jones that we saw today had this really unusual looking blood, but tell me about that. So they, it gives them a forum to have a conversation with the faculty rather than just talking to us in the hall. The other thing that I think re I really like about this way of doing things is that if it's interesting to me, if I go and talk to, if like, for example, the resident writes down a plan that I disagree with, um, I could go tackle them in the hall and tell them that, or we could discuss it uh, at the end of the day. And, and I, I would never do it in a way to make them feel like they're dumb, but just because if they have this question, the other residents and the fellow would have the same question. And why, why would I treat this person this way when the resident has suggested this? So we try to save all those kind of discussions uh, for the end of the day where everyone can learn rather than just the person who was involved in that patient's care. And I've really, uh, I've really, really liked that. I mean, the only exception would be if, if you see a physical finding, you know, well, you miss that disc hemorrhage, go look at that optic nerve, you know, and, um, but otherwise we do it at the end of the day. Uh, I think the key for me, the key is to not be, uh, not be demeaning. You know, our residents are so smart. I mean, I probably wouldn't have gotten into our residency program. So, um, you know, I, and I don't want to ever make them feel um, like they're not smart. I just, I think it's when you disagree with somebody, um, I think those discussions are, are really, really how you, you, things get buried deeper in your brain. Um, than if, if you just are told something. Yeah. No, uh, you know, both my parents were teachers before they came to the United States. 
So uh, they always emphasize trying to make sure that the student is always felt encouraged and, uh, you know, you try to gain their confidence. And uh, sometimes, you know, students can surprise you. So I, I like the method that you've described. Uh, you've created this uh, learning environment for everyone. And uh, maybe the same question that someone has and thinks is, you know, dumb, uh, the somebody else may have mistaken it in the same way. And uh, in that way, nobody is embarrassed or, you know, uh, everybody has a way to to answer themselves uh, through through these uh, lectures that, that you you've mentioned. So I, I really appreciate that. No, oh, thanks. Um, lastly, I just want to close, you know, uh, you've mentioned you golf. Um, so what is one thing you love doing and spending time uh, with now? Well, uh, yeah, I, I do love to golf. Uh, I find that it's um, uh, this last week has been a really hard week for me because I've been horrible, but I, I'm getting back. <laughs> um, I, I enjoy it because I think for particularly for men, we're not good about just hanging around people and having conversations. And so it's a way to be out with a bunch of people and just walking along uh, and talking. And, I, you know, it helps my keep my weight down if I walk 18 holes. Um, so I do like golf. I, I'm, uh, I, I still have an interest in some some papers that we're still writing. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in updating the website. I'm, I'm hoping that Dr. Basie and Dr. Powell will help me with that, uh, the, the curriculum website. Goniascopy is kind of uh, timeless. Um, I'm sort of trying to sort out my family history a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky that all my kids and my grandkids live uh, within three miles of me. So I, uh, I get to go to a lot of softball games and, uh, and get to hang around my grandkids a lot, which has been a a, a thrill for me. That's lovely. Uh, I mean, you, you're very fortunate that family is close by. Usually, we all kind of disperse when we're when we're older. So it's it's a, it's a good and warm feeling to be able to know where your kids are. Oh yeah, yeah, and they all actually moved as far away as Japan, but ultimately ended oh, up wow. coming back. So yeah, um, it, and none of them live in my basement, so that's a good thing. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Albert, thank you so much for this fruitful conversation. I think I picked uh, a wonderful guest. Uh, you've given back to this conversation so much more than I could have hoped. Um, you're an excellent teacher. You've always been a very well-spirited uh, surgeon. And uh, in this conversation, I've, I feel like I've gotten to know you a lot better. Um, and uh, certainly I can think, uh, you know, virtually in the Orbis community, uh, a lot of the trainees have also warmed up to you uh, with your wonderful personality and your encouragement in, in, in teaching. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this was, you know, a, an incredibly rich conversation. So thank you so much for this. Oh, thanks so much. It's been really fun talking to you. I look forward to your career in ophthalmology. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio, video, recordings on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and Google. Our release dates are each Friday evening of the week we interview our guest speakers. So we hope that everything is very convenient for you to access. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope you ride along to meet more inspirational figures in global ophthalmology. Thanks and take care.